more you supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Yeah, there goes. Sending out good vibes. Popping in quick. Um, from home with a little update. This audio is from the weekly contact at the cabin guest meetings we've been having where we've had some of the all the guests that are attending the contact at the cabin with Randall Carlson this year have access to where they can interact with Randall and the Snake Brothers are helping out. Um, the Brothers of the Serpent are helping out hosting and Randall's there and Brandon's there and I'm there and Graham's there from time to time. We kind of all take turns. Randall's been there quite a bit. Uh, anyway, this audio is ripped from that. This is sort of a best of from that. Uh, there's more of it. There's uh, five or six hours of it for black budget supporters if they want access to it. Uh, there's also, you can just sign up and join and come along. Um, we, uh, if you can't afford it, head over to badcomet.com for all the info. Badcomet.com. There's all the info on registration. We are almost out of spots. Uh, if you're a supporter of the Grime America show, we are giving away um, uh, a free a free spot, and we are also raffling off a spot. So we are raffling off a a a a, 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 a free spot uh, that's twenty bucks a pop. If you want to get involved in the raffle, you need to email Adam at GrimeAmerica.com. Uh, same if you're a current or new subscriber to the Grimerica Show monetarily. Email adam at grimerica.com. Let him know you want on the list and he will take care of you. Anyway, yeah, uh, check out badcomet.com, guys. You don't want to miss this. And also get in on the raffle. I think there is about, um, oh, I want to say there's about 15 or 20 tickets left. So hurry up. <laughs> let them all in and you guys ready all right here we are guys this is the contact at the cabin camp a conference with randall carlson uh i am russ this is my brother kyle we are hosting this uh conference basically we all want to be able to get together get to know each other a little bit before we go out on this excursion that we're going to be doing I mean, I would seriously think that if we had a group of, say, a dozen people, there may be a few of them that really literally wouldn't survive. It would be too awesome. (laughs) (laughs) We've got field trips. We've got lectures. We've got immersions in the spring and the river. We've got to eat food. We've got to sleep. We've got to party and drum and build bonfires. old do you think this rant, this knowledge could be randall like i, I know you've you've talked with graham and uh, with graham hancock about his ancient civilization stuff how old how ancient do you think this understanding could maybe be like how long have humans well i would know? say that it's definitely prehistoric 
Now, how far back does it go? I don't know. You know, if you look at some of the caves, the cave paintings, Lascaux Cave and some of those others, and you look at the astronomical paintings that are dated to 15 or 16,000 years ago, it, it, I would, you know, I wouldn't be shocked to find out that it goes that back that far, maybe farther. Um, see, the problem is, the problem is, is we're just standing on the threshold of realizing that we're just at the, we're at the, 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 the very point of the sword of this story of civilization on earth. And most of the blade of the sword is missing. We, it's invisible to us. So pretty much the direction that we go from here in this paradigm shift is reaching back and parting the veil in that, that leads into that deep history of the human species on earth. And I think it's probably going to be shockingly much more complex, complex and deep, much deeper than we had even imagined. But, yeah. uh, you know, the thing is, is we, we look back at the, at the dawn of history and it, it does not make, there are things, too many things that do not make sense within the conventional models of prehistory because there's just too much, there's, there's, there's too much understanding of, of the way the universe works. There's too much understanding of, of mathematics and too much understanding and interest in astronomy and too much knowledge of engineering. Um, too much knowledge of geodesy, um, things that, that why would hunter gatherers, why would subsistence farmers be interested in tracking the 18.6, the, the very subtle 18.6 year cycle of lunar motion from lunar maxima to lunar minima and back again? Why, why would they be interested in tracking that? There, there's no practical need from the standpoint of a hunter gatherer or, a, or a, a subsistence farmer. But they obviously had a reason to do that. And they, they did it consistently all over the ancient world. Now, why? That's, that's the question that we're confronted with. And I want some answers. Recently, there was a, uh, a con not an alignment, there, but there was a, what was it, like last couple like six months ago or something where all those planets were in the sky at the same time yeah, that's right and that was yeah. a really that was really cool and it was easy we had we have a deck on our house and we would bring people up on the deck and we show them okay see this line of planets going across the sky that's the ecliptic that was a really awesome visual to help people sort of start to get the grasp okay that's the actual like that's the the, the record that we're all sitting on if you think of it as a big giant record with the sun in the middle right oh so, um if you've got, you know, for, for a more extended time, what I recommend doing is just getting uh, in the habit of tracking the moon. Since the moon makes one complete orbit through the ecliptic every month, you can mm. go out and if you have a, 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 an ephemeris or you have an astronomy software program or a book or whatever that you can uh, generally, uh, you know, using an ephemeris that will tell you the position of the moon if you don't have... Um, you know, uh, electronic means, but better these days, of course, is to have an app on your computer or have a, an astronomy program on your computer, uh, you know, where you can basically pull up maps of the night sky and tell it to go to whatever date and time you want. So then you can see what, what you're looking for. Um, but yeah, to track the moon, that's the best way. Spend, spend a couple of months, uh, you know, looking at the motion of the moon three or four times a week. Um, and then correlating that with uh, the signs that it's traversing and the constellations it's traversing. And after you've watched the lunar cycle two or three times, you'll have a pretty good idea of the plane of the ecliptic and the 
array of the constellations along that ecliptic. We're also going to have a full moon or blue moon on this first Saturday night. This is a kind of a more three-dimensional type view. And this is actually a good way to do it. Lay out an axis, a north, south, east, west axis on the ground on a nice flat place. Get you a chair and go sit out there for an evening. Watch what's going on. And do oh, that man. regularly. Do that, you know, a couple of times a month. Well, and Wednesday is the spring equinox. And Wednesday is spring equinox coming right up around the corner two days from now. Yep. So you can see there the, the, the as it says, the sun's trajectory above the horizon. You see the winter solstice, the summer solstice, and the equinoxes. So you can see the summer solstice. You'll notice there the length of the path above the horizon is much, is, is considerably longer than the path of the sun above the horizon at the time of the winter solstice, which of course is the shortest day because um, you see when the sun rises there around summer solstice, you can see how much pathway it has to traverse before it sets again compared to, you know, on the winter solstice. So you can see right there in this graphic how and why summer days are longer, right? So, you know, and this, this fellow here, he'd be sitting there facing directly south um, because we're in the Northern Hemisphere, so you're going to see the ecliptic to the south. Um, so, yeah, this is, the, this is the way to do it right here. Just sure. get out, get out there. You just go out in the yard and spray white spray paint on, on your grass and your, your wife wouldn't yeah. get mad? That's it. <laughs> That's it. White spray paint. Now, here's the question. Do you know how to lay out a right angle on the ground? We have a uh, a transit. Well, okay. If you have a transit, I presume you know how to use a transit, so therefore you could do that. But let's suppose I came over and I took your transit away and wouldn't let you use it. Maybe we could do a three, four, five triangle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you could do that. Now, here's how would you get it oriented? North, south, east, west. We'd have to watch the sunrise on the equinox or the sunset, maybe. Well, that would work. But suppose I came and it was uh, August 30th. Oh, man. Or, uh, you missed my birthday because it was on the 1st. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry, Randall. Tell us. I, I know you got the answer. Well, I tell you what we can do. Remind me when we're out there in Colorado and, and we'll just do it. That sounds yes. great. Yes. Let's do it. So I have a question, Randall, about the uh, going back to the pole star. Um, I I used Stellarium and kind of rewound to see when Vegas sort of you can if you go real fast speed you can see Vegas sort of circling around and then getting closer and closer to the pole. Uh huh. Yeah. And then it'll spin back out and then Polaris comes back in. Yep. Uh, so I feel like this is really interesting that we live in a time. And, the, and the, the development of technology and everything, we've had this long period where that star has allowed for seafaring uh, civilizations to, to use it at night for their travel. You mean what happens when it's not Polaris. That's right, Polaris. Yeah, yeah. Polaris. These long periods when Polaris is not there. Uh, what, well, know. I mean, there are other, but, you know, if we go back to, um, to this graphic here, You'll notice Deneb there, or Deneb, and Kepheus, Thuban. You just mm -hmm. 
you know, these stars aren't as prominent, but you would just have to learn how to use other stars. Okay. And presumably that might be one reason why uh, I've always thought that navigation was one of the obvious um, skill sets that would go along with being able to, you know, read the sky. And I've always thought that might not be the full explanation why it was important. Astronomy was so important, but it would have been one of the reasons. It definitely might be one of the reasons why they started to get so good at it and then started to recognize larger cycles. But I, I think what Kyle's greater question was, so that you have this big part of this arc and this circle you're showing us here where there aren't any northern stars, basically. Right. The ones that are close, but they're off. So they're going to wobble over the nighttime. So in other words, we don't have one that's on it. So you have these periods where I guess what he's saying is it's harder to navigate I mean, it. Yes, it would have been more difficult. Right. No, it, you know, it wouldn't have been... It wouldn't have been that difficult on land because once you're seeing that that motion, what you're going to do is you typically here's what you might do: you you might set up two poles and run a two verticals and put a horizontal, and then you would hang a plumb bob off the middle, right? Now that's your four set. Then you have to have a back set. Now the back set could be another pole. It could be an object on the horizon, right? But what you're doing is you're sighting along that alignment. And then what you're doing is you're taking and you're, here's, again, here's your, ver your verticals and here's your horizontal. So you're back here and you're sighting over this horizontal to the horizon, let's say, right? So you see a Thuban rise, then you see it set, right? So as it's rising on the horizon, you mark that point on the horizontal, see? Now when it sets, you mark the point on the horizontal, right? Because now with Polaris, it makes a little bitty circle, real tight little circle, but it makes a circle. It doesn't actually define the North Polar Axis. It circles around the North Polar Axis, see? Any one of these, these circumpolar stars would do the same thing, whether it's a bigger circle or a little circle. But you could do the same thing. You see, once you get its two positions, its rising and setting positions, you basically split that down the middle, and that's north. See what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So, so, so at any given time, Polaris is not exactly due north, right? It's going to be a little bit east of north, a little bit west of north, right? right. But, but what you want to do is you want to get those two points, and then you split that down, you split the difference, and that will be a very accurate north. Now you can get a northwest, a north-south uh, line. And if you know a little bit of geometry, you can lay out a perpendicular to that, and that's automatically your east-west line. Now, on the other hand, <clears throat> you could lay out an east-west line by putting a pole in the ground and drawing a circle around it. The height of the pole relative to the radius of the circle needs to be such that when the sun rises in the morning, you have a shadow cast by the pole, and as the sun, as the sun rises, the shadow gets shorter, at noon, the shadow is as short as it's going to be, and then as the sun starts setting in the west, the shadow, which is, you have to visualize that it's simultaneously pivoting around. So when the sun is rising in the east, the shadow is pointing to the west, and it's as long as, it, as it's going to get. And then it, as, at, while it's shrinking in length, it's pivoting around, right, towards the east. So it's if the shadow's in the west in the morning and it's in the east in the evening when the sun is setting. Well, here's the thing. If you draw a circle around that pole, 
so that at some point about mid-morning, the shadow, and the best thing to do is if your pole has a point to it. If, you're, if your uh, pole, let's say, for example, looks like an obelisk, it's a tall, straight, vertical object coming to a point at the top so that the shadow has a point. What you do is you wait until whatever point in the mid-morning that that shadow has shrunk to the point where it's now crossing because initially the shadow is going to be much longer than the radius of the circle, right? What you're looking for is at what point does that shadow, does the point to the shadow intersect the circle? And there you mark that point. Now the shadow continues to shorten as it swings around. It's going to point due north right at high noon. And then, it, and, and that's going to be when the shadow is the shortest. So if you were marking this shadow, say every few minutes, what you'd be seeing is on the ground, it's describing an arc. It's describing an arc in the circle. And, and so now it swings around, right? And it's going to be the shortest at noon. Then as the sun is now going down in the west, the shadow is swinging to the east. It's getting longer and longer as it's swinging around. And at some point in the afternoon, late afternoon, it will intersect the circle you've drawn. At that, you mark that point. Now, if you take those two points, right, that you've established, a line between those will be your east-west line. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Well, I mean, obviously, it's got to be a clear, clear enough day that you can get shadows. You're not going to be able to do this on an on a overcast day. Right. But, you know, so what you do is, you know, you've got a project, you want to establish that axis, then, then you just go out there. You got to be out there, you know, set your pole in the ground, you know, mark out your circle. I mean, you could do it. You could take a piece of plywood and have a dowel in the center and you could draw a, a circle around with a, you know, with a piece of string and a piece of uh, a crayon or a piece of chalk or a pencil. Or you could go bigger. You could, could have put a pole in the ground and you could, you know, actually etch out a circle on the ground, a uh, larger scale. You know, the larger the scale, the easier up to a point, the easier it is to get accurate, um, you know, observations and accurate measurements of where the, the, these points are. But, you know, for all practical purposes, you know, you might be, if you're really careful, you probably can get within a degree of, a, of an east-west line, maybe half a degree. But, you know, a half a degree, you probably can work with that, right? I mean, if you're doing this, you know, for example, if you're going to do passive solar architecture, you're going to, you want to have a nice south-facing wall of glass, right? So you want the long axis of your building to be east-west. Now, if that long axis is slightly cockeyed by a quarter of a degree, uh, it ain't going to make much difference, right? Mm. It depends on what your purpose is. If if it's for ultra-precise observations, then you probably ought to do it preferably over several mornings, really over several seasons, you know, and then because then you can calibrate and, and fine-tune. But really, because see, the, another, another place that uh, uh, an, a little bit of an error would creep in is that in in that time span between the rising and the setting of the sun, the earth has moved. So it's been all that whole time, it's moving 18 and a half miles per second. And while it's moving, it's shifting, and also its axis is slightly moving. So, you know, what will happen is your east-west won't be precisely exact, but it'll be really, really close. Now, your north-south, that you can get really, really, really close. If you, if you, um, 
you know, make a number of observations and then uh, reconcile them um, and, and adjust them over a period of maybe a week or two. Yeah, you could get really, really accurate observations and establish a very accurate north-south axis. And then your right angle is there's multiple ways. There's at least three different ways to lay out a uh, one line perpendicular to another line. How much do you think this particular cycle, this great year cycle that Plato talked about, has to do with uh, catastrophic events of the past? Do you think there is a sort of a recurring pattern that has to do with this, or is this showing us something about the pattern? That's what tradition suggests. This right here was one of the key works. Can you see that Hamlet's Mill? Oh, yes. Yeah. An inve essay investigating the origins of human knowledge and transmission through myth. So a big part of what this is, Hamlet's mill, the mill, their idea of the mill, this is the mill, the axis of the earth doing this. That's Hamlet's mill. And behind the story, the Shakespearean story of Hamlet is this deep myth of this Amladi, um, um, I think is how he's pronounced. I'm not exactly sure. But the word Hamlet comes from from that character whom the poet made one of us, the first unhappy intellectual concealed a past as a legendary being, his features predetermined, pre-shaped by long-standing myth. It was a surprise to find behind the mask an ancient all-embracing cosmic power, the original master of the dreamed of first age of the world. So uh, it was conceived of as a big, uh, as a mill that ground out the image of the mill and its owner yielded elsewhere to more sophisticated ones, more adherent to celestial events in Plato's powerful mind. The figure stood out as the craftsman, God, the demiurge who shaped the heavens, but even Plato did not escape the idea he, he had inherited of catastrophes and the periodic rebuilding of the world. This was one of the key philosophical, cosmological, epistemological, eschatological ideas of the world, around which their whole, the whole framework of their civilizations were oriented, whether it was the Greeks, whether it was the Egyptians, whether it was the Sumerians, whether it was the Mayans, the fundamental cornerstone of the foundation of their culture, their civilization, was this idea that civilizations, like worlds in general, are periodically destroyed and renewed. Isn't that in the Hindu tradition, too, of Kali? Uh, yes. The Hindu both... tradition of the Yugas and the Kalpas, these ages, the great ages of the world, the great cycles of the world through which the world is periodically destroyed and then restored again. Right. And there's a, there's a goddess that specifically is like she's both the destroyer and the mother, right? There's an imagery Egypt, there. Would be, she yeah, does that would be um, Sekhmet, the destroyer god, the lion head of the lion-headed god and and her counterpart hathor so okay. there's an example of this like this um you know this this dual personality under some circumstances hathor who is normally a very benign benevolent god would also go through this transformation into sekhmet this fierce lion-headed goddess that almost that almost caused the extinction of of humanity as a matter of fact in the in the Egyptian legends. Right. And I've always, when I first started to look at the ancient mythology, that always puzzled me. Well, for a while it puzzled me until I started to understand what it meant. But I was like, wait a minute, how can you have a mother goddess who's supposed to love all life go suddenly flip out and destroy everything and set everything on fire? 
And so that <laughs> I always, for a while, I struggled with that. And then I understood that there's this re, there's this cleansing basically is the idea of the Phoenix concept. Yeah. We can, we can see examples in our own history of where worlds have been destroyed. And I say world, not in the sense in the, in the, in the astronomical sense of being a planet, but a world being the domain of our existence at a given time. So the Egyptians had a world. It was centered around what happened in the Nile Valley and the, the seasonal cycle and flooding of the Nile. You know, the Native American people had a, a world, right? Um, we could look, you know, the, the, there was the world of the ancient Vedas. Um, now our world is essentially encompasses the, the entire planet, but we can say a world is destroyed we're not necessarily saying like a planet is destroyed. You see what I'm saying? A world. And, and the world um, that we're talking about here, we have seen worlds destroyed. I think about the eruption of Mount Tambora back in the year 1815. Are you familiar with that at all? It erupted, uh, you know, in the, in that arc of fire down by Indonesia um, near Sumatra. I studied the Krakatoa one, but uh, not that one. I haven't. This Krakatoa was, this was 1815, and it, the following year was called the Year Without a Summer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. And, right. So, yeah, you had snowfalls in July up in New England. Um, you know, people, you know, anecdotal stories about people celebrating the 4th of July, and they're outside in their overcoats, shivering and freezing. You know, but, but there was a lot of, uh, uh, dire consequences of that. And it was one of the last great subsistence crises in the Western world um, because of uh, agricultural collapses that summer. Um, you know, the food supply ran out and there was famine and a lot of people died from, from hunger and starvation. Um, we, had, we had sort of a, a mini view into what happens when a world is destroyed there. Um, and th this is kind of what I'm getting at is that the world is periodically destroyed and renewed. Now, the people who lived on those islands in the, in the, in the region of, of Tambora, they witnessed the world being destroyed. And the world that was destroyed, particularly on that island, was, um, was a long entrenched, long established, very rich culture that, that was there with very interesting traditions. And it, it was literally erased from the face of the earth. Uh, in the, in the, as a consequence of that eruption. But now suppose you are somebody who's living on the, say, the far end of the island, and by the luck of the draw, you manage to survive. Now, up until that point, your experience has been, see, the, 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 the Tamboran people had turned their island kind of into a paradise. I mean, they... Um, they, one of the things they did was they raised horses and they had some of the finest horses on the planet at the time. And, and they were highly valued all over like the, uh, the Eastern world and as far into, into Europe because of the, the, their, their, um, their speed and their endurance and their strength. And they had, um, you know, very pastoral existence there that they had learned how to live with the land. And, and so as far back as their generations went, they had this very benign relationship with the island and with nature and with the sea. Now, all of a sudden, this benign earth decides it's going to change. And within a matter of a few weeks, 
you start getting these massive eruptions. You start getting, you know, massive uh, ash falls. In some places, in the areas within, say, 10 miles of the volcano, the ash that came down was 10 feet thick, right? Oh. The whole island got blanketed. It, it caused, um, it killed every horse on the island. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, uh, so now you got to think about that story, right? Think about, okay, and think about now the, going back to the, to, the, to the myth about the goddess, right? So here you have the, the benign earth goddess, you know, who's, who's for generations has been sort of suckering these people and, and, and providing them with abundance and the fruit of the land. And all of a sudden, it goes into a rage and destroys the whole thing in a matter of one to two days and just wipes out the island and destroys this culture, destroys the ecosystem of the island. Um, it took decades for, to, for, to recover. People, uh, ships that were sailing by 10 and 20 years later were still seeing huge blocks of ash floating in the harbors that had turned into almost like blocks of, of ferro-cement or something. Um, wow. You know, seeing that the, the trees that had been blown down um, the descriptions of it make it sound very much like uh, the scene at Tunguska um, with the trees blown down. Um, I don't know right. if you've ever been up to Mount St. Helens, but you can see the remnants of that big blast that occurred in May of 1980, right? And that Bradley and I went up there uh, a few years ago. In fact, on the same trip that we, we, we met up with Graham, before we did, we, we went up and spent the day at Mount St. Helens investigating how. Um, essentially what we were interested in seeing was the rate of recovery and how much had recovered in the interim since basically that whole pristine landscape was utterly obliterated and turned into the moon for, you know, what, 200 square miles. So it was very interesting. But now you have to think about those kinds of things, I think, to get to some of the meaning of the, the myths, how a, how a benign mother goddess can suddenly turn violent and deadly. Does that make sense? Go on this fucking Zoom call. Holy fuck. So the next the, the next question I have then is what do you think I think you've talked about this before, but what do you think procession actually is? Do you think it's the axis? Or do you think there's some other uh maybe a greater effect like the sun is orbiting some binary companion or something well, like that? Well, that's an idea that's been out there for a long time. And you know, at this point I, I can't say. I mean it, it, it seems to me that the standard explanation works, but there very possibly could be more to it than that. I mean, because, you know, we might be talking about motion on a much larger scale, because basically what we're seeing is over a period of, you know, 12,000 or 25, 26,000 years is the sky moving up and then coming back down again, moving up and coming back down again. We see the sky the constellation shifting with respect to the um, to the uh, celestial equator. And is there another way to explain that? I don't know. But, you know, there are traditions that certainly seem to suggest that there might be something, uh, you know, uh, uh, because, see, everything, you know, think about this. The moon is orbiting the Earth. The Earth is orbiting the sun. The sun is orbiting the galaxy, right? Maybe on a long period of a couple hundred million years. Now, is there a subgalactic orbital center? Is there something around which our solar system is orbiting intermediate between the sun and the center of the galaxy? 
Is that possible? It, it, I think it is possible. And if you think of it this way, you know, when you go out and if you start making observations of the sun from day to day, what you're going to see is that relative to the stars, and, and the way they did this, because obviously you can't see the stars when you're looking at the sun, but the way they overcame this problem in the old days was by looking at the heliacal rising. So what you did was you went out in the morning before the sun came over the horizon, and then you looked at what stars you could see, right? And then maybe a year or two later, you would see that that had shifted slightly, maybe, or maybe a decade later, you would see that that had shifted slightly. But if you're trying to look at the position of the stars relative to the sun, now you can obviously see if you go out and watch the sunrise every morning and you look at the heliacal rising of the adjacent stars, you will see it'll quickly accumulate. Within a week, you'll easily begin to see that, oh, yeah, look, we're seeing a new star now on the horizon that we didn't see last week. And then the subsequent week, you'll see more. So so you, you can actually track the motion of the sun relative to the backdrop of fixed stars. Now, astronomers, of course, you know, aren't bothered by that. They can look at any time they want and it, it pretty much any part of the of the of the night sky. But here's the thing. When you see the sun in its apparent motion along the ecliptic, which is roughly one degree per day, right? Because it's 360 degrees around the ecliptic, but it takes 365 days to actually make the full circuit. So that means that it's just a little bit shy of a degree each day, but you know, for, for, for practical purposes, we can think of a degree per day it's that, 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 that the sun is going to be moving against the fixed backdrop of stars. Well, I just said the sun moving against the fixed backdrop of stars, but it's not actually the sun's motion that we're, that we're seeing against the backdrop of stars, is it? No, it's our motion. Can, can you picture what I'm saying? Backdrop of fixed stars. The sun appears to be moving only because we're moving around the sun. So as we're moving around the sun, we're constantly seeing it against a different map of the night sky. So the apparent motion of the sun is actually is the actual motion of the Earth. Does that make sense? A degree per day or a degree per year? A degree per day. I'm talking about the annual. The annual. Okay. Uh, Annual cycle, so the the sun has to be moving roughly one degree per day to be able to traverse the full 360 degrees in in one year. So, what I'm trying to get at is that the motion, the apparent motion of the sun against the backdrop of the sun. We're not. It's not the sun moving. It's us moving. See, it's the Earth moving around the sun. So as we're moving around the sun, we're we're seeing this constantly changing panorama of stars behind it, right? So now when we look at, at, at the fixed stars, they're called fixed stars because over a typical human lifetime, they're not really seen to move with respect to each other, right? Although some stars, a few stars, do have enough proper motion that that it can be detected over a matter of years when you when you're able to down... And, and, and measure motion within arc seconds, say, or pieces of an arc second, as opposed to minutes or degrees. At that point, because that's where you, you would use arc seconds, which is looking at stellar motion, okay? So 
when you look at this fixed backdrop of stars, are any of them moving? Well, some of them are. One of the stars that is moving against the backdrop of much further away stars is Sirius, the dog star, which is about 8.6 light years from Earth, right? So it's, it's, it's in our stellar neighborhood. So when we look at Sirius, it appears to be moving one arc second per year. One arc second per year. So Earth goes around the sun, and in that time, Sirius has moved one arc second. Now, how much is one arc second? Well, it's one sixtieth of an arc minute. How much is an arc minute? That's a sixtieth of a degree. There's 360 degrees in a circle. So take that one degree, divide by 60, that's a minute. Divide that by 60, that's a second of arc or an arc second. So how many arc seconds are there in an entire circle? Well, there are 360 degrees, and there are 60 times 360 arc minutes, which is 3,600. And then there are 60 times 3,600 arc seconds in a full circle or in the full circle of the plane of the ecliptic, right? So what's 60 times 360? It's 1,296,000. 1,296,000 years. Now, in the Vedas, in the system of yugas, you have... The Kali Yuga, the Dawapari Yuga, the Treta Yuga, the uh, Satya Yuga, and the Maha Yuga. The Treta Yuga was three, three periods of the Kali Yuga, which is 432,000. The Dawapara is two of those, which is 864,000. Three of those is the Treta Yuga, which is 1,296,000 years. Or... The same as the number of arc seconds in a circle. Now, that's interesting stuff. Yeah. Now, go back to what I said about the dog star. Proper motion, one arc second. Now, consider this. What if that motion that we're seeing of Sirius against the backdrop of stars is not the motion of Sirius as much as it's the motion of our solar system with respect to Sirius? See what I'm getting at? Exactly. Like we're looking at Sirius to the further background of stars, just like we yes. are looking through the sun at the yes. background of stars, if we have and a motion around it. The, the apparent motion of the sun is actually our orbital motion around the sun. The apparent motion of the dog star, speculating, but could we interpret that as being the motion, our motion with respect to Sirius? And if it is one arc second per year, that means the full cycle is 1,296,000 years, which by coincidence is the length of the Treta Yuga in the Vedic system. So is it possible? So what that tells you right there is something interesting because for one thing, 1,296,000 happens to be precisely 50 processional cycles of the earth. See? So... Right there, that tells you that the system of, of yugas that, that we've inherited from the Vedas is linked directly to the processional cycle. 50 processional cycles is a trade of yuga. Coincidence? Maybe. Yeah, and you guys said you're going to bring some, uh, you guys 
Are you guys musicians? We yes. are. <laughs> we are, okay. Well, We're you know what I was talking about for years and years was dervish trance drumming. All right. That's awesome. Yeah. That and it, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, so well, that, I'm, that, I'm bringing my djembe, so I'll be rocking out on the djembe. Okay, that works, man. Bunch of other, yeah, uh, I, I've learned a few West African riffs that I can. All right. <laughs> yeah. I've got so. a bunch of other, a box full of other little random percussion instruments too that are just fun and so okay. We'll pass them around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sounds sounds good. Yeah. It sounds it kind of reminds me of the old days, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the old days. I'm talking about uh, six, damn <laughs> half a century ago. <laughs> It was this procession, though, right? Even <laughs> Rolling around, man. There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> I know it. Well, the only, you know, we got to figure out, see, well, 72 years, man. That's, you know, that's one degree of the ecliptic, so. On your 72nd birthday, we should have an enormous party. <laughs> oh, I mean, man, yeah, before yeah. It was just a total blowout. Total just, yeah. yeah. Never. Oh, listen, man. It's a good thing you didn't know me back in the day. <laughs> I'd have given you a run for it. For everybody that may or may not have heard through the grapevine, talking to Darren or whoever, there's a lot of synchronicities that are popping up with these um with this event. Yes. And it's almost getting kind of spooky. Um, and the one I just we'll tell you about now because it, it popped up with their podcast. Sheldon is a economic geologist, I think is what you would call him. He studies geology to, to do mining, you know, get the resources out of the ground. I found out yesterday that the owner of the lodge, his grandfather invented economic geology. You can look <laughs> it up. His last name's Ransom. He's known for creating the body of knowledge economic geology wow <laughs> so uh that's a little taste of the stuff that's been happening and and the allen brothers and i are working out another one it's gonna show Randall my rail yeah so um i used to swim regularly in really cold northern lakes so i don't know if that comes close to being sitting in a tub full of ice cubes, but it's pretty damn cold. But that's oh, man. a while, so I have to readjust. Well, you know, the cold is is such a great tool, and and I mean, we'll get into the whole idea of it just being, you know, when you're pushed um, to a certain exertion physically, it always just comes down to you and your breath. And the cold makes you observe your breath really quickly. It's, it's, it's like the best passive stress on the planet. And it's so accessible everywhere. And I imagine, Randall, that people that, that were able to transition through massive earth changes were pretty adept to cold. Yeah, I think you've got a really valuable point there. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you, I mean, it has, it has to be the case, pretty much. Yeah. And, and so I just, I like the idea that, you know, um, there is this crossover sort of in, in, in these, uh, in these works. I'm really interested, I think, in 
technologies, let's call them that, that are, you know, intimately linked to um, these physiological states that we can access in nature. So let's say maybe they're shamanic, you know, in, in, you know, in essence, when you're trying to name it, um, you could say it's, it's these particular states that, um, you know, let's say uh, rock climbing is one of my favorite pastimes. And so it's, it, you know, and it's really, you know, when you think of like rock climbing, it's very, um, it's very torturous. Like, why would you want to achieve uh, being able to overcome um, uh, a rock face? And I think ultimately it comes down to wanting to be able to access flow states. And I think, you know, this was something that Wim, um, who is a, a definitely a mentor of mine and somebody who I deeply respect, uh, this is this is one of the um, the things that brought the Wim Hof method into being was uh, mountain climbing um, and and having to like I was saying earlier, you know when you're pushed to a certain uh, exertion, you're there's a silence, you know, and you really feel it when you're climbing, and you're just there with your breath, and so the breath becomes the the the, the forefront of your thought. And really, you leave, um, I think, any, any thought, any type of questioning, you just have to keep going. And this is where uh, Wim started to realize specific things about the breath. And I think why there's such a calling from so many people who have experienced these types of states and realize that, you know, his method in particular um, putting it with the passive stress, like we were talking about the cold, which is essentially what the Wim Hof method is, breathing practice, um, and then having the contrast of the cold and, you know, so your breath practice sort of being put to the test and, and then the, uh, adaption in the moment and with the, the proper emphasis on the technique, we can create pain barriers and buffers and, and um, um, immediately you, you get an access into particular nervous states. And this is a, uh, you're, you'll become acutely aware of this. Should you survive the initial shock of the cold? Some people don't make it, but most people do. I have to throw the caveat out there that, uh, yes, I mean, the cold is dangerous. But but ultimately, if you can handle your shit, you will uh, get it, everything under control. Most every single person I've ever worked with, and I've worked, put up probably a, you know, um, I, I call it ice baptizing people. But we put people in real cold water, and everybody seems to come out. I've probably worked with well over a thousand people, and um, doing this stuff, and it's it's amazing. So is the okay the 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 flow state you're talking about this sort of I've read about something they call the zone, which is where all all like thought goes away and you just completely focus on what's happening and that's how they survive the base jumping. Is that sort of what you're talking about? That you reach this sort of like ultimate altered state? Well, I, I do think there is a so <clears throat> I think that there's a balance, right? And I think it really kind of depends on the activity. I think you can get into flow states, painting, for instance, which was ultimately where flow was defined was around painters. 
Um, but I think you can also get into flow states base jumping. I think you're going to have two different types of, of flow, you know what I mean, going on, at least probably if you're, if you're actually reading brain waves and studying what is, you know, what is actually constituting what you would call flow, um, and maybe even reading, uh, you know, past the brain waves and, and actually looking at, at how, you know, what, what parts of the brain are actually working. I think, you know, so not to talk around your question, I think ultimately um, there are different levels, maybe of flow state and, and how long you actually can hold certain intensities versus others that you could probably stay in for very long periods of time. You know, like uh -huh. I, I imagine you can only base jump for so long. You know what I mean? And <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like you're only going to yeah. be able to handle that intensity for so long. You can, but you could probably paint, you know, for days on end without taking any food. Well, I think we're going to, we're going to do some really powerful breathing sessions, which um, are, you know, in the group atmosphere, they really, they really create, um, a, a kind of a group mind experience, which I think is tremendous when we're, we're taking on the work of Randall Carlson because we want to be focused. And, you know, so this type of stuff will really open you up and it will really sort of prime the system, I think, for the day, especially if we get up and take advantage of like the sunrise you know, I mean, I think this is um, a, a tremendous time to to sort of empower yourself with the breath. Um, I'm open to doing cold exposure in, in any way that we can create it, whether it's through ice tubs and or swimming pool, ice pools, whatever, or we find some really good nature. I'm down with on the spot exposure too when we have the when we have the time. Like you know, it's it, it's that's a great way to test the bounds of the the method so one of Wim's favorite things to do is to just not even show you how to do anything and just say go get in the cold how are you going to deal know where your baseline is and now we'll work with you and I will figure out you know the method and we'll figure out how to train the breathing to go along with it so I think I'm going to give everybody the tools to um, you're going to learn the Wim Hof method from you know uh you know I mean I'm I've been with Wim uh, I was one of the first uh, international instructors. Um, Randall knows I've been pedaling ice baths out of the back of my car for a long time. I've, you know, I've been around doing this um, for um, about four years now, and and I've been in the method myself for about five years. Um, it's uh, it, it changed my life. I means ultimately why I'm dedicated so much time to it. I do other things as well, but it's it's uh, it's such a great practice. So when we get together, we're gonna see um, you know a culmination of the years of Wim Hof practice. But then I have a lot of other tools in my in my trick or my in my uh, you know my uh, my Your shaman bag. So. Yeah. yeah, my bag of tricks. So we're gonna we're gonna really get down and look what we're gonna do and what I'm so interested in is results. You guys are gonna know how to take this stuff home with you and keep practicing and keep going. It's a very simple method. It's just, hey, can you get your breath under control in 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 a stressful situation? You know, and um and it's a it's a really powerful thing. <laughs>
there's all kinds of ways to train the body and the system. And I really look forward to just being in nature and absorbing, you know, the essence that's coming from it and any challenge that we, you know, so choose to look at, we can apply this method. So Brandon, where yes, we're sir. staying out there, you know, is near Pagosta Springs. So of course there's hot springs there. And then we're only a few miles from the San Juan River where it flows right out of the San Juan Mountains. So I have no doubt that in May there's going to be some extremely cold river water coming down. I, I haven't explored the area personally, so I don't know exactly where access points would be, but I'm sure we could find some to get down if we wanted to immerse ourselves in the San Juan River, into this cold glacial water that's coming off of the San Juan Mountains. <laughs> and from the snow. I, then a few miles, we've got the, the, the sacred healing springs at Pagosa Springs that are varying degrees of hotness. So we got some options. The, the, I mean, man, do you know how epic this all sounds? Um, you know, I, I'm so appreciative of this whole thing, man. And I, and I want that to be known. You know, my heart is here. And, and uh, you know, Randall, I love you, man. I love this work. So, you know, just know that uh, I'm here to support you, brother, in any way I can. It makes me feel good, Brandon. It really does. And, uh, yeah, just uh, knowing this is coming down the way it is really is actually camping up my excitement about this thing to another level. To license it. Damn. And by, and by the way, I, I want to say that the one thing that, you know, makes a little bit of what I do unique, man, is the drumming, right? So, I mean, that's been my big contribution, I think, to the Wim Hof Method is, is that I brought my drum along and integrated it all, Randall. So I can't wait to drum with you, buddy. Yeah, you know, I've got, I'm trying to get back into it because uh, I did, uh, I guess you would call it uh, dervish trance drumming for about 20 years. And I haven't hardly touched a drum in, uh, well, about three years. I, I actually shifted over a few years ago, and I did a year's worth of lessons in West African drumming. Man, I'll have my djembe, Randall, so we'll, we'll uh, and, and if, uh, you know, if I need to bring a couple, we'll, we'll bring them there. I'm bringing Good. one, too. I'm bringing a djembe and a doom back. Okay. I'm going to bring right. a didgeridoo or two or three. There we go. All right. All right. Oh, this is already turning into an awesome. So you said you've been to Chimney Rock before and we're definitely going there, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, we're definitely going there. And and um, that's yeah, and that's one of the things we, we, we would definitely need to have a lecture on archaeoastronomy. OK, I showed this last week or the week before, but th this is where basically we hike up to we hike up to this to the Kiva that's at the top. And this was the observatory. And then this is built right where the signal tower was. So this is where they built their bonfires that could be seen probably for several, well, could be seen probably for 30 or 40 miles south of here out into the desert. And that was part of that whole network of signal fires that they used for a, some kind of a system of communication. And then, I think I took that picture in this one. So then on the other side, there's a ridge right up here and they used um they had a way they, they had some kind of a brand do you remember what was it that they built on this ridge that would catch the shaft of the sunlight coming through the twin rocks was it megaliths or did they build towers i can't remember now i'm sure we'll, we'll get refreshed on that when we're there um 
you can see the sun coming up between the two pillars. And so what they did was they used this as a device to track this, the, the motions of the sun and the moon. See, Canyon of the Ancients, I think, is, to my current knowledge, is about as far northwest as the Chacoan culture outliers reached. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? That is beautiful. Yeah. Be a nice place to see a sunset. Absolutely. So what's the, um, what's the, I guess, well, the way we say it is what's the standard model story on the Chacoan culture? And then what do you think that uh, they were doing? Well, I mean, the last wave, you know, was a thousand years ago. And then the mystery is what happened. Right. They were there and then boom, the, they were gone. I mean, they were there active for centuries doing this whole enterprise in the San Juan Basin and in the adjacent and contiguous deserts. It seems to be that they were very active, um, lots of cultural activity going on. And then like that, it was gone and they, the people were gone. And where did they go? That's part of the mystery. It seems to be a rather familiar mystery throughout the history of various groups uh, in the plant around the planet at various times. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, and I'm going to be, um, we'll figure out how to do this. Maybe Alan, you can help me if I post some things like that, that people can read ahead of time to learn more because the more background you've got really the better the experience will be. Plus it, it means that we save time uh, on having to prep, the basics. So I, I've already got some stuff like, um, you know, I could do PDFs. I could turn these PowerPoint shows into PDFs or, um, you know, some, some, uh, some of the literature on some of this stuff. That's, that's real good. Some of the background, maybe on the archaeoastronomy. How can we get that out? What would be the best way to get that out to everybody, Alan? Um, you, whatever you send me, I can put on the, the CAC 19 website. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll be part of the game plan then. So Randall, did they have any, uh, burial traditions that we know of? Uh, I don't know about that. You know, I'm still, I'm really still a novice when it comes to this. Of course, there's not too many people who could really claim to be experts, but there are a few, but, um, you know, I'm catching up. I, I've gone through various phases, you know, 10 years ago when we first were visiting some of these sites, I was really getting up to speed on what the latest research was. But then I, you know, you, you get sidelined into other things and I've been looking more at the paleohydrological end and the mass extinction ends and so forth. So I'm coming back around now to try to catch up on what is some of the, the more recent uh, studies that have been done. Um, Interestingly enough, a lot of that is in Graham's new book, America Before, um, which has, goes into the Chacoan culture, but not as, not as much. I mean, he, there's a lot of stuff still left uncovered, but, you know, he, his, the, the, the whole sweep of the book is quite vast. So, you know, if you're talking about South American and Amazonia, and then you're talking about Southwestern United States, and then you're talking about the Mississippi and Ohio Valleys, the part I'm in now, which is about three quarters of the way through the book, he's showing the amazing correlations between the Mississippian and Hopewell and Adena cultures that built in the uh, Ohio and uh, Mississippi River valleys and the quite striking correlations between that and 
certain Egyptian traditions. Um, so I'm sure that most of you will probably read, end up reading that book at some point. But yeah, it's it's a very interesting stuff. He doesn't dwell a whole lot on the southwestern Chacoan, but he does certainly get into that. And, and what I had already concluded was that, you know, you see this ball court right here at Wapaki. Well, if you go to down to the Yucatan and go to Central America, you see this exact same kind of ball court. So, you know, clearly there's some kind of cultural overlap between what's happening in the, you know, here in, in uh, this is actually in Arizona, and what was going on in, in Central America. Well, we also know from the kind of artifacts that have found the kind of materials and so forth that the Tchacoan culture had cultural interactions with the Mississippian and Hopewell cultures at various times. Well, what this is implying is that we may be able to, to build a case that there was an actually an integrated cultural phenomena that reached from, you know, almost New England, the headwaters of the Ohio River, down to Mississippi, that it interacted with the Tchacoan culture in the Southwest, and that in turn interacted with presumably the Mayan culture um, in Central America. Now, did, did the Mayan culture have links uh, with, with cultural groups further south? Well, after reading Graham Hancock's book, now I'm, it, it, it's highly likely that yes, they did have cultural contacts with this civilization that left this infrastructure in Amazonia. And see, this is, this is a whole other wrinkle in, in this whole paradigm shift now is this idea that underneath you know, thousands of square miles of the Amazonian rainforest are remnants of this gigantic infrastructure, monumental earthwork structures, very much like we find in, you know, eastern United States. So what does this mean? I, I'm still trying to ponder and sort out the implications of, of this, and I'm sure that Graham gets into his own speculation and interpretation by the end of the book, but it, it really has even expanded my thinking more about this in realizing the vast extent of these interlinked cultural activities that were going on here, that when most of us were coming up and being taught history, not a single word of any of this was even mentioned. And yet, it, it, in its own way, it was just as profound and phenomenal and advanced in certain aspects as what was going on the other on going on on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. So it's a it's a very interesting story, and we're just going to kind of be on the periphery of it when we go to Chimney Rock and 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 Mesa Verde, we're basically going to the the northernmost rim of, of the whole Chacoan cultural phenomena. But what we'll see there will give us a little bit of a glimpse. I mean, certainly we're going to come away from Chimney Rock with a, 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 a very impressive, uh, you know, a very, very um, uh, profound impression of what these people were actually up to. Because what it appears, this is, it appears in a nutshell, that for whatever reason and whatever their motivation was, they were attempting over the whole vast extent of the San Juan Basin, 10 or 12,000 square miles, to recreate, to duplicate in some respect the pattern of the heavens. It was a linking of earth and sky. And so what you have there is essentially the astronomical domain, the celestial domain, and its patterns projected onto the landscape of the southwestern deserts and that celestial map projected onto the desert gave the layout of the infrastructure the, the the kivas and the outliers and the signal towers and the roadways so we're just really at the very beginning of figuring out what this was all about and what these people were up to and what was their motivation but it wasn't just an idiosyncratic thing to the to the people, the Chacoan peoples, that's the same thing they were doing up 
in the Mississippi Valley. And it was the same thing they were doing down in the Amazonian basin that is now, you know, concealed under under the canopy of the rainforest. But it was also the same thing that they were doing in megalithic Europe. And apparently the same thing they were doing in Egypt. So what's the motivation? That's part of the mystery. And that's, you know, kind of what we're, the mindset we're trying to get into here is we're going to try to get into the mindset of the people that engaged in this enterprise and try to maybe empathize with what their motives were and what the incentives were what was it that inspired these people? Where was the source of their knowledge? These are the questions that are going to be the themes of, and how did they integrate their, their cultural infrastructure with the regional geology? Because that's a big part of it as well, because these people moved into this landscape post-catastrophe. There had been cultural groups there pre-catastrophe whose presence was for the most part erased, other than a few uh, isolated examples and left over. What was there before was basically erased in the last great transition from say 10 to 14,000 years ago in that concentrated uh, episode of pulsed, uh, concentrated changes, right? These people then came in and moved in in the aftermath of that and began after uh, a period I would say as as the as the so-called climatic optimum or hypsothermal was coming to an end, population which had crashed at the end of the ice age during that whole younger driest episode had now rebounded. See, here's the thing you got to understand: there's not going to be any vast infrastructural uh, uh, projects going on if there's no labor force. You see, coming out of the ice age and in, in the post in the immediate post catastrophe world. <clears throat> There was no labor force. So even if you knew the, the technology of, of laying out these structures and building them and what the purpose was, if you didn't have a, a labor force, you couldn't do it. So it took a period of time. It took several millennia before the human population could rebound enough that there was actually a labor force that could begin move, coring the stones, moving the stones, moving the earth, cutting the, the timber that was used, and, and essentially handling these materials, move, transporting these materials over vast distances, assembling these materials. It took an army, literally armies of craftspeople and, and builders and masons uh, to do this. And, and then being also guided by geometricians and astronomers. And where do these people come from? Where did their knowledge come from? Well, that's part of the central mystery. But again, so what we're, what we're going to try to do when we're there is we're going to try to get into the minds of these post-catastrophe colonists that came in and begin laying the groundwork. Now, what we're going to be seeing is towards the latter end of these, this, these multiple phases of, of building activity. But they essentially, the earliest ones now are being dated back to about 6,000 years ago. So this comes right at the end of the hypsothermal. So in the immediate aftermath of the of the frigid cold of the Younger Dryas, we had three or 4,000 years of very warm, benign climate, right? And this was, a, this was the time when uh, nomadic peoples around the world were worshiping effigies of corpulent pregnant goddesses that represented the earth. You have to understand, the, we've all seen in pictures in museums of these, these, these rotund goddesses, right? that are generally considered to be pregnant. <clears throat> well, they were images of the earth. They were images of the 
of a pregnant fecund earth that had which had revived after this desolation of the catastrophe see and so now what happens is habitat gets wiped out the top of the food chain gets decapitated the great predators that 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 were such a danger to to paleolithic humans they're gone right so now humans have been elevated in the food chain because of the by default because you know the these big gigantic predators that were so prevalent during the ice ages a lot of them about three quarters of them boom they're gone see also because of the population crash there's no competition for territory or space so basically what you had and then because it was the climatic optimum or hypsothermal what you had was a long growing season abundant crops lots of rainfall and this was the era of the goddess people were worshiping the earth because the earth was being so uh so beneficial it was being so munificent uh to these survivors of the catastrophe and the descendants of the survivors and this went on uh for a period of three or four thousand five thousand years depending on where you were because the the changes that left from the climatic optimum into the new glacial the neoglacial we're not everywhere the same. Okay, so now you had this 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 first wave of this 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 creation of this infrastructure, this mimicking of of, of heavens on the earth, and this goes back fifty five hundred to six thousand years ago. Essentially, there were multiple waves, then there were interruptions, and then the work would recommence. And basically, what we're seeing and what we're going to be seeing out there is going to be like for most of it, it's going to be the final wave. Uh, which took place, you know, roughly a thousand years ago. Um, and then mysteriously they disappeared. So they were gone. When the Europeans arrived and started keeping records of this, the Chaco people were, were already gone and had been replaced by their successor cultures. So, um, and then some of the, the, you know, like when we go to Mesa Verde, we're going to see how, how, how the, the people actually moved in and adapted themselves to this post-catastrophe landscape because the, when the great floods came through, which was the intense precipitation events that, that uh, coincided with these climate changes into and out of the Younger Dryas. Every stream and creek pretty much in North America, every river <clears throat> carried hugely augmented water flows. These highly charged, swift, turbulent water flows did an enormous amount of erosional and sedimentological work. So we're going to be seeing a lot of that. Right in Durango, we're going to see gigantic river terraces that are a legacy of these massive sediment-laden flows that came down the Animas River Valley. And half of the town of Durango is now built on these flood, catastrophic flood features. We'll see that. We'll, there's an overlook there where we can see very clearly these gigantic flood terraces. The erosion was extreme. <clears throat> so anyways, what... What happened when the water came through many of these channels swiftly, it undercut the sandstone cliffs, right, and left these overhanging nets. We talked about this in a, in a previous week, how oftentimes one of the one of the um, the evidence of these catastrophic and turbulent flows is overhanging cliffs. We see many pinnacle rocks is another example, Ch uh, channels and chasms with sheer vertical walls. See, so when the floods came through. Many of these overhanging cliffs were left in the aftermath where the water flowing through swiftly, highly erosive, undercut those cliffs. Then the post-catastrophe colonists came in and they moved into those 
into those zones beneath these these cliffs, these overhanging cliffs. So that's and that's where they built their their cities. So it's a uh, interesting stuff. That's what we're going to be looking at. That's what we're going to be learning about. In addition to soaking in hot springs and cold rivers and drumming and eating and whatever else might be going down. So yeah, we can go all over the darn place. Um, yeah, look at this. This is way back from 1908. Some high-level terraces. Terraces. See, we're going to see some terraces. We're going to see high-level terraces. That's what I was talking about. This is another uh, diagnostic or evidence for gigantic catastrophic floods. So about 30 years ago, and this was written in 1908, Professor J.J. Stevenson called attention to a considerable, considerable number of high-level terraces or benches occurring in the upper Ohio River region, almost absolutely level, ranging in height from 1,100 to 2,580 feet above sea level. These high-level terraces are recent, having been made since the last warpings of the region and being very well preserved. Professor Stevenson explained that they are due to wave work on the valley walls and hillsides when the region was deeply submerged subsequent to the retreat of the ice sheet. So, I mean, there, were, there have been geologists who've been on to this, but see, what the difference is, is that when this was written in 1908, they weren't, for example, correlating this particular evidence of massive floods with, say, a flood that was going on in the southwestern deserts, or the flood that was bursting out of Lake Bonneville, or the flood that was bursting out, out of the Cordilleran ice sheets of Canada. You see what I'm saying? The difference now is, is that we're in a position where we can begin integrating and putting all of this stuff together to create a much more comprehensive and coherent model of what the hell actually happened. Let's see. So now here's another, another one. This is the Wabash drainage in Indiana, the Wabash River, which is a tributary to the Ohio. So the outstanding topographic feature of northern Indiana is the great till plain beneath which is buried an ancient pre-glacial erosion surface. You see what I'm, what this is, see, in other words, what you have to start realizing is that when we go, there was a, there was a different world before all of this happened. In the aftermath, first of all, we're talking about extreme erosion, right? So when you're erosion, eroding something, you're stripping material away and you're transporting that material, but that material ultimately has to be deposited somewhere, see? So what you have is the f landscape of the former world, in one region it's been stripped away, but in another region it's been buried. You see, between the two processes, that's why it's hard-pressed to find the evidence the, uh, of the existence of this former world, because people don't understand the, the, the scale, uh, the vast scale and intensity of these events that swept over the face of the earth. But as he goes on here, the Wabash Valley is a great sluiceway which came into existence during the Pleistocene glaciation by the erosive work of debris-laden floodwaters, which debouched from the melting glacier. Not only the Wabash, but also the Salmony, the Mississinawa, Eel, and Little Rivers are super. So what he's saying there is he's showing this one river and saying, yeah, it was a sluiceway for these gigantic floods, but not just that one, but all these other rivers in the region as well. You see, now imagine that pre-flood, those river valleys are occupied with villages and communities of people, you see, that have, who, who knows, have been living there perhaps for, for centuries, if not millennia. 
in the aftermath of these floods, what's going to be left of that? Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Thus, in northern Indiana today, we find set into the till plain a glacial sluiceway, which was once filled with a great rushing torrent of debris-laden waters. And see, we could use that same descriptive uh, phrase to apply to pretty much anywhere, including the area where we're going to be. So I'm just jumping around and showing you places around the continent to show you the, the extreme extent of these things. Now, here's, here's depositional. Now, you see, this, there's an architecture here, and there's a story laid out that can be deciphered by one who understands the syntax of this, these particular formations. And you can see the various layers here. And then you see that you see these, this, this is called festoon bedding. This is formed by water. Picture now sediment, sediment later laden water. It's slowing down, but it's, as it's slowing down, it's doing this. As it's sloshing back and forth. Can you see the festoon bedding here? Yes. This, you can see it? Yeah. Then, after all the flooding is finally over, see, that's not all that's going on because there's something atmospheric that's happening at the same time. You see, the atmosphere is supercharged with stuff, with material. It's overloaded with debris, right? Now, the last flood settles out and leaves a vast mudplain. Then the stuff that's in the atmosphere begins to filter down and begins to consolidate over the highest flood layer. And it forms this material called lus. And it's a very interesting material because it has unique properties, right? It's been very controversial as to its formation, but I think that the only way, in generally, there's been two camps. One is said lust forms by wind action. No, lust forms by water action. I think the answer is that lust forms by essentially torrential rainfalls that aren't real rainfalls. They're, they're more um, mud storms. What you see when you start putting all of this together is a scenario that, um, yeah, would have been pretty devastating to the local landscape, the local flora, the local fauna, any activity of people. There would have been very, very slim possibilities of surviving these kinds of events. And that's why it appears that in the aftermath of the um, Younger Dryas, um, there was no cultural activity apparent after the, dis the sudden disappearance of the Clovis culture for 600 to 1,000 years. Yeah, this, this is an outline of the Laurentide ice sheet right here. So you can see how it pretty much like would have covered New York, Chicago, Detroit, Twin Cities, pretty much all of Canada. And then it's talking about glacial lakes, spillways in the mid-continent region which are extremely large relative to most modern rivers. And here's one. This is a glacial lake Agassiz spillway. We visited Big Stone Lake. We took Graham to this on, on one of our sites on the, on the trip that we uh, took Graham to. It's also a, a bird preserve, and that's uh, about the most amazing bird experience I've ever had in my life. The, the most amazing ornithological experience was immersion in these birds. It was just amazing um but that's that's another trip right there 
Um, so yeah, all across the Midwestern Plains are these big sluiceways. Then they're again, fossil features. Some of them have creeks, some of them are dry, some of them have rivers in them, but they're all relics of the great meltdown. So see, it doesn't really matter where we go. The evidence for catastrophe at the end of the last ice age actually is global in scale. Although, although we could, we could, uh, uh, make the caveat that North America seems to have been ground zero. North America seems to have been the most severely affected. Because for one thing, if we, if we look at species loss, species loss is a measure of habitat loss. And habitat loss, loss is going to be directly related to the magnitude of the cat catastrophic events, right? North America suffered the greatest species loss at the end of the last ice age. We, North America hosted more great mega mammals than you would find in sub-Saharan Africa today, if you can imagine that, right? Sub-Saharan Africa has one species of elephant. North America had four species. Think about that. It had huge lions and, and cheetahs and, and, and massive elephant-sized ground sloths, and it had camels, and it had... It had armadillos, 500-pound armadillos and 500-pound beavers. And, you know, it, the, the list went on and on and on. All of those, all of those magnificent beasts were eliminated, I'm erased. I'm sorry, they were slaughtered by early humans. Oh, oh okay, wait a minute. I, I, I'm sorry, I was mistaken. Mike, just clarify for me. They were actually <laughs> slaughtered by early humans. Yeah, the American Pleistocene lion, which is like the size of a penny, was slaughtered by humans. Right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what they did when they were taking time off from slaughtering the mammoths, then they slaughtered the saber-toothed cats and the giant ground sloths and the giant beavers and the giant uh, armadillos and the cave bear and, and the, the camels and, and on and on and on and on. Right, right. That was their spare time when they weren't slaughtering mammoths. <laughs> I read I read an article once by this Soviet paleont this this is from back in the day, like 25, 30 years ago, this article that I read, but I've always remembered it. Um he uh he was was a paleontologist and he was like thinking, well, okay, so if Paleolithic man slaughtered the megafauna, killed off or killed off the, the, the mammoths, killed off the mammoths. Well, presumably they were eating the mammoths, right? I mean, that would be their primary motive, presumably, for killing the mammoths. They were eating them. So then he did a calculation about how much meat comes from a mammoth and how much meat would each of these Paleolithic hunters have to be eating. Um, and it came up, I, 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 uh, what I did was I translated it into modern uh, medium. And it came up to something like 25, uh, 25 double Big Macs every day. It was something really <laughs> ridiculous like that, like two dozen, two dozen quarter pounders every day is something like. So, so basically, the prevailing theory has been is that Paleolithic hunters ate 12 million woolly mammoths so quick that they couldn't reproduce. Right, right. <laughs> What well, did they, they, they would kill them? Slice off those, those guys really. So that was why the Clovis disappeared was because they all got so fat from eating mammoth steaks that they couldn't move anymore. And when the, when the shit happened, that was it, man. They were sitting, 
sitting <laughs> fat pudgy ducks that couldn't uh, <laughs> get out of the way. <laughs> no, but see that to me that underscores how silly the idea really is that that you know paleo Indian hunters with spears on foot were able to exterminate globally over a hundred species of mega mammal, you know, in a in an eye blink. I mean Listen, that's the curse that they talk about in the book of Genesis. The curse see, is because, like, you just kind of start getting things figured out, and you get to the point where, like, hey, hey, you know, because I think now, if I knew what I know now, but I felt like I did when I was twenty, yeah. my God, yes. what I think would be more capable of changing the Earth's axis would be the subsequent rearranging of the earth's topography with the deglaciation and the rise of the ocean levels and so on. Um, remember we talked last week about isostasy or that was on the podcast I did with you guys, right? <laughs> we talked about isostasy, the vertical movements that That's would right. do with glacial loading and glacial unloading with ocean basin loading and ocean basin unloading, the transfer of, trillions upon trillions of, of tons of weight from the continents back into the oceans, from the oceans back to the continents and vice versa again in a repeating cycle. And this kind of weight transference, I think, could affect, I mean, well, let's put it, there's no way it could not affect the rotation of the earth. The question is, is how much could it affect the rotation of the earth? And this is where we kind of got into talking about the idea of crustal slippage or accelerated plate technology that might follow in the wake of this tremendous mass transfer over the surface of the earth, which I th still think is a plausible explanation for some of the, the changes in, in latitude that, that seem to be suggested by the configuration of the uh, uh, late glacial maximum compared to the post-glacial period that we're in now. Um, we talked about how the size of the combined Laurentide and Cordilleran ice sheets would fit pretty nicely in a circle just about the size of the Arctic Circle, right? And the center of that ice sheet was Hudson Bay. It wasn't the North Pole. It was Hudson Bay. And while no, half, more than half of North America was buried under this massive ice sheet, there was only minimal ice in Siberia. And apparently Siberia also hosted some of the, the greatest density of megafaunal population on the planet at the time. So what were they eating? Right. So, I mean, there, there's there's so many questions raised about this and what happened and, and, and the exact sequence and timing of events that I wish more. I wish there was more smart people thinking about it, you know, because what's happened is science has been kind of hijacked. And I think some of you know what I'm talking about here. And um, right now, the big concern is carbon dioxide. Right. <laughs> Listen, carbon dioxide is an atmospheric trace gas. There's one molecule of carbon dioxide for every 10,000 molecules of air. Back up. There's four molecules of carbon dioxide for every 10,000 of air. A hundred years ago, there were three molecules. What we are supposed to believe is adding that fourth molecule of carbon dioxide relative to 10,000 molecules of air is going to trigger a catastrophe. 
only not because not because the carbon dioxide itself is doing it, but the carbon dioxide only initiates a set of feedback processes. That's how the computer models can spit out these these catastrophic changes that are projected to occur. Not directly because of the carbon dioxide, but through the feedback processes that are triggered by the introduction of that extra molecule of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Because what that is supposed to do is supposed to enhance the amount of water vapor that's in the atmosphere. And at water vapor is far and away the dominant uh, greenhouse gas, right? Well, the slight increase in global warming that takes place because of that additional molecule of carbon dioxide then is supposed to trigger an increase in water vapor. The water vapor then is supposed to cause the heating of the planet, which then turns around and causes a feedback process in that what happens is as oceans warm, the solubility of carbon dioxide decreases, and so it outgasses, right? Which when you look at the paleoclimatological record, what you see is that in every single case, where the planet warms and cools, warms and cools, warms and cools, which it is, which it has been doing on any time scale we look at. Here's what we see: we see that the temperature change precedes the carbon dioxide change. Which anybody understanding the solubility physics of carbon dioxide and how how it, its uh, intake, how it's uptaken by the ocean and then uh, expelled by the ocean, knows that when the ocean is cooling. It sucks in and draws down the carbon dioxide. When it's warming, it it emits the carbon dioxide. So, yeah, yeah. and so that, with that as a little background, I mean, here's the thing: an enormous amount of scientific attention has gone on to the question of carbon dioxide, and over over two dozen computer models have been have been um, designed and implemented, all based upon the introduction of a small amount of carbon dioxide triggering a whole set of feedback processes that essentially just then go out of control and cause global catastrophe. Is that accurate or not? I think it's, I think it's legitimate to challenge that because for one thing, one of the things that water vapor does is it creates more clouds. And clouds have a net cooling effect because clouds tend to reflect thermal and solar energy back to space. So how have clouds been accounted for in the computer models? Well, they haven't really. And how have, how have changes in the so, uh, solar radiation been uh, accounted for in the computer? They haven't been, see? So what has happened is all of the other natural forces of climate change, other than carbon dioxide, have been excluded from all of these elegant, sophisticated computer models. Why? Because the outcome was already decided before the whole research began. And, and, and this is simple fact. And anybody who researches the whole process will quickly learn that, can, can learn that, yeah, the, the conclusion was already arrived at. The research was then conducted to support the, the conclusion, the foreordained conclusion. So, but we're going to find out that there are other things in nature besides increases or decreases in carbon dioxide that affect global change. Yeah. yeah. In fact, there are processes that would totally blow the carbon dioxide effect and, and render it to be nothing. And, and, and of course, it's been known really since the early 20th century that, that, um, that the thermal capture ability of carbon dioxide 
is described by a logarithmic scale. So the first 50 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere captures most of the heat. And each subsequent increment from uh, additional increment of carbon dioxide added to the atmosphere after that um, is less capable of, of, of actually capturing heat. Because there's a, there's a narrow window, and it's from 14, roughly from 14 to 17 microns, right? And it's only within that window that carbon dioxide is, is able to capture the heat coming through, right? Well, if the carbon dioxide is already, if the first, say, 100 parts per million is already capturing most of that heat that's coming through that window, well, you could keep adding carbon dioxide, you know, forever and ever almost, well, up to a point, and it doesn't have any more effect on temperature. And, and, and really, we can see periods of time in Earth history where it appears to actually have been cooler than now, where... Uh, at, where carbon dioxide concentrations were like a thousand or eleven hundred or twelve hundred parts per million, three to four times what it has been in the last, say, century or up up to now. So you know it, it, it's you know it's it's a very beneficial gas. That's the thing. It drives photosynthesis. Plants love carbon dioxide. Without carbon dioxide, plants wither and die. And if anybody, if you, any of you have not read. I've got an essay online. It's on Brad's website. It's called, isn't it, Brad? Um, yes. It's, it's called uh, The Redemption of the Beast. And it's about 80-some pages analyzing the, the whole cycle of carbon dioxide and its role in the atmosphere, its role in biology. And people need to read that because they don't understand the nature. Of, see, carbon dioxide has been demonized because... You know, the declaring of carbon dioxide as a pollutant by the EPA was really a political maneuver. It, it, it's not scientific, you know, any more than, you know, declaring oxygen a, 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 a pollutant, right? Because every single breath that you exhale, you're exhaling carbon dioxide, right? And every molecule of carbon dioxide that's released into Earth's atmosphere, think of it, CO2, right? One carbon, two oxygen atoms together, right? Through the process of photosynthesis, one carbon and one oxygen model is consumed by the plant. The other oxygen model is released into the atmosphere. So the whole process of photosynthesis, it recharges the atmosphere with oxygen, see? If you stop photosynthesis, then what happens to the atmospheric content of the, of the uh, atmosphere, see? So... And, and there's a reason why greenhouse growers pump up the carbon dioxide to about 1,000 to 1,200 parts per million because they know from their own experience that the plants love it. They grow healthier. They're more resistant to disease. They have more succulent fruit. They have more below-ground biomass, on and on. And, and so um, that's a normal thing to do, see? And, and what has happened is I kind of look at it as very much like during the Middle Ages, um, whenever there was inclement weather quite frequently, in fact, there have been interesting studies that have linked the, the, the witch burning episodes that have come in the wake of global coolings or extreme weather events where people were blaming the, the extreme weather on the devil. Now, this, this happened multiple times throughout the Little Ice Age because there's tons of evidence to show that during the global cooling episodes, you actually have more extreme weather than during global warming episodes. And, and you know, I, I've 
I'd love for anybody to challenge me on this because there's tons of data about this, right? Well, anyways, when there would be an there would be inclement weather, there'd be some extreme weather event, a failure of crops in the field. So it was blamed on the devil. Well, then of course the uh, the witches were the agents of the devil. See, so all of these witch burning pogroms almost completely. And in this, in this one European scholar who did this study showed statistically this high correlation between bad weather and witch burning programs. And of course, burning these burning these women. These were the women who were um, extremely knowledgeable about the use of plants and herbs and and natural medicines and all of this. So, I kind of look at this modern thing. It's like in place of the devil now, we have carbon dioxide. And the reason I call this essay The Redemption of the Beast is because we all know in the book of Revelations, the number of the beast, right? What, what, what is it, Russ? 666. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay. So if we look at the atomic structure of carbon, what is it? It's six protons, six neutrons, and six electrons. So 666 kind of <laughs> describes... There we go. Yeah. See, so, um, so I kind of use that as a metaphor. I did right? not know so there's carbon dioxide, six, six, six. It's the beast, you know, the evil ah. beast. So, um, that's, that's what this essay is. Redemption of the beast. I'm trying to show that no carbon dioxide. And see, if we look at, at this period of time, the late quaternary during which these, these devastating ice ages have repeatedly come on, what happens is they're, they're sucking down the carbon dioxide to 200 to 180 parts per million. Well, one scholar I recently read was pointing out that, well, you know, when, when carbon, and it's, it's in this essay that I wrote, right, it, the references and all, when carbon dioxide gets that low, food, you can't grow food crops. There's no such thing as agriculture. So how, how would you have farming, how would you have agriculture if the carbon atmospheric carbon dioxide level is only 180 parts per million? Once it got up to post ice age up to 220 to 250 now you can actually start growing this what are called the c4 plants right which are the plants that thrive in a high carbon dioxide enriched atmosphere as opposed to the c3 plants which evolved in order to uh survive in a low carbon dioxide atmosphere but yeah i just you know the the, the propaganda is so vast and so extensive that you know, if you if you speak up and you, you challenge it, you know, like I have publicly, like I've gone on, you know, Joe Rogan, you know, those times and, and challenged the, the global warming consensus and some of the stuff that the, the, the comments that people make, it has nothing to do with any of the facts or the evidence or the references that I brought to the table. It's all ad hominem. It's all straw men. It's all of that. But there's never any factual rebuttal of any of the stuff I've just said, because the stuff that I've been describing here is well established within the actual peer-reviewed scientific literature that the critics never read. They just accept what they're being fed, spoon-fed by mainstream media and the propaganda organs, see? And I know a lot of people, you know, it's, it's, it's about, to me, it's about, well, there are a lot of really there are a lot of issues. There are a lot of real environmental issues that we need to be addressing, right? If we're siphoning huge amounts of money away to look at this one particular thing, because, well, because we can, if it's carbon dioxide driven, then it's caused, then we can blame it on humans, right? We can blame it on our civilization, our burning of fossil fuels. If it's the sun, we can't do that. 
See, we can't, how do we blame, how do we blame changes in the sun? If the ultraviolet spectrum of this, of the solar radiation changes suddenly, which it does, intensifies, d diminishes in intensity. If that has an effect on the climate, well, obviously we can't blame that on the actions of humans. And then therefore we can't use that as an excuse to control human behavior. We're looking now at the possibility of there being untold vast enterprises of, of, of culture that went on before we have a, what is now the historical record. See, the old assumption is, is that you had just millennia after millennium of barbarism, right? There was no science. There was no accumulated learning. There was nothing, no invention of writing. There was no way that we could actually establish a record of what people were doing until, you know, the earliest examples would be cuneiform writing in, in the Fertile Crescent, right? Maybe the, maybe uh, writings from Vedic India that, you know, these things go back 4,000, 5,000, 5,500 years, these earliest examples, right? The assumption of... of what was going on previous was the Stone Age. You know, well, it was the Stone Age for however long humans first showed up on this stage, you know, up until recorded history was the Stone Age. It was either the Neolithic, the Mesolithic, or the Paleolithic, the New Stone Age, the Middle Stone Age, or the Old Stone Age, right? Well, again, the assumption was is that there was nothing that we could actually refer to as science, right? But... No, not anymore. What we're looking at is at the very dawn of history. And, and, and Hancock said this, you know, way back in the mid-90s, right? What we might be seeing at the dawn of recorded history is the end of something else, right? The end of some much vaster, earlier phase of, of human activity on Earth, whose memory was pretty much lost. And of course, when these ideas were first proposed, you know, a quarter century ago, 30, 40 years ago, it was easy to dismiss them because within the framework of those uniformitarian models, well, well, if there was something going on 10,000 or 15,000 years ago, we would see the evidence of it. What was not known or, or appreciated was the extent to which the planetary surface repeatedly gets remodeled and the severity of those remodeling events. And the other thing, of course, the implications for us is where are we now? Because what we've seen, the history of this planet, is a history of these repeated um, events, these repeated remodeling events. And the other part of this, this newly evolving scenario is that in the interim, between these events, is when civilizations arise. And then it's at the, when these, these events, these discontinuities, these points of discontinuity um, uh, reveal themselves, that's when civilizations decline. So we see, first we understood now, oh, species don't just gradually go extinct a few, you know, a few percent at a time in this continuum of extinction. They go extinct in these mass sudden events, these mass extinction events, right? Well, we, we came to understand that back in the 70s. It was confirmed in the 80s and further in the 90s that, that, that the model of of species existence, of, of, of biological life on Earth wasn't like this. It was like this, okay, with peaks and troughs. Now we can understand that human civilization is described by the same kind of model. Just as species go extinct, civilizations have gone extinct, you see, and it would behoove us to understand why. And it almost certainly, in most cases, if not all cases, is going to be blamed on natural catastrophic climate change or environmental change. 
that has been outside the control of human beings for the most part. You see, now, if those kind of agencies, which could be anything from massive volcanic eruptions to impacts of things from space to um, intensified solar activity or diminished solar activity, those are the things we need to be looking at, you see. But we've put all of our eggs into the carbon dioxide basket. And based upon that, we are supposed to decommission industrial civilization. I don't think that makes sense because we have a civilization that has creates for us the potential of perhaps surviving the next time that happens. And when is that going to happen? Nobody can predict. I don't claim to know. You know, a lot of people over the years say, well, the world's going to end on such and such a date. You know, 2012 was the last time everybody was concerned about. It. And I remember I came out repeatedly publicly. I said, no, you know, uh, whatever, December 21st, 2012, it's going to be an interesting day astronomically because you're going to have an alignment between Earth, the winter solstice, the sun, and the the galaxy, which was an extremely interesting event. But that didn't necessarily mean it was going to trigger the global catastrophe and the end of civilization like everybody was worrying about, right? In one of the first articles I wrote, and I think it's online, I think it's on the Sacred Geometry website, it's called, um, the boy who cried wolf and it's basically about that idea that if you keep crying wolf over and over again when when there is no real wolf eventually when the real wolf does show up nobody's going to believe you and the sheep are going to get eaten see well that's kind of the, the the predicament that we're in you see because what we can now tell from the paleoclimatological record is that the intervals between catastrophic disruptions is small enough that we've already in our last 10,000 years of the Holocene exceeded any known period of relative calm and stability that we know of within the last two or three or 400,000 years. So what should, you know, so what really should be our response to that knowledge? You see, our response to that knowledge is, yeah, we need to understand climate change. Absolutely. No doubt. But it's a much, much, much bigger issue than just carbon dioxide. And that does not make me, as I've been repeatedly called, a climate change denier, which is ludicrous to call me that. <laughs> I actually now take it as sort of a <laughs> So, anyway, yeah, some of the stuff we're going to be looking at out there, it's going to be um, dealing directly, we'll, we'll, we'll have direct implications on these questions that I'm raising right here. All right, ladies and gentlemen. See you next week. I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, Wednesday. Chrissy and Philip. Thanks for hanging in. You guys didn't have much to say tonight. (laughs) But it's good to see you here.